Welcome to the members only live chat. This is when members of my channel get exclusive access to ask me their questions. If you want to become a member, you can do so for as little as 99 cents per month by clicking the join button on my page. Post your questions in the chat below and let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Tuesday Night Live stream. <clears throat> um, let's go ahead and start off with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll uh, get get into the conversation. Hey, while you're at it, we have a prayer request. Okay, what's the request? Uh, Thalia Amick asks, can you pray for my father to get off of drugs? Okay. So. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. And Lord, we just invite you, invite your Holy Spirit to come and to meet with us, to speak to us. Lord, guide our conversation. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in everything we say and do. And Lord, I pray for Thalia's father, that you would help him with his drug addiction, that you would help him have freedom in the name of Yeshua. Lord, we give you praise and honor. In the name of Yeshua, amen. Amen. So this week, <clears throat> yesterday actually, uh, was my 19th wedding anniversary. And so I've been married to Amanda for 19 years. Um, and then this coming Shavuot will be our 10th uh, Shavuot, our 10th Pentecost. And so we've been married 19 years and keeping the feast for 10. Um, so this is kind of a, an anniversary week. Uh, Shavuot was our first feast day. And so we started um, coming to the understanding of that we should be keeping the Sabbath and the feasts right after Passover. And so our first feast day was Pentecost. And, uh, you know, we weren't sure what we were doing. We had... Um, and we didn't know anybody who kept the feasts and we were just like, well, what do we do to keep the feasts? How do we keep Pentecost? And so we got online and we Googled, how do you celebrate Shavuot? And we read that they stay up, uh, stay up late reading the Torah and eating cheesecake. And so that's what we did for our first Pentecost <laughs> is we stayed up late reading the Torah and ate cheesecake and we like cheesecake, so it worked out okay. Um, and you know, every year we kind of—it's a little bit different. Um, the last few years, um, our our congregation—we decided um, a couple of years ago, let's do a camping trip for Pentecost, and we kind of did it as a test run to see if we would be ready to host our own Sukkot basically. And so we did a, a Pentecost, um, camping trip, at you know, to, to prep us for, for, for Sukkot, for temp, for tabernacles. And everybody had so much fun doing it. They were like, well, let's do it again next year. So, last few years we've had a camping trip uh, for Pentecost and we'll, we'll camp out for the whole weekend and we usually do baptisms on uh, Sunday and um, you know we have teaching event you know teaching all three days we're there Friday Saturday Sunday and worship time and uh, lots of fellowship and just have a lot of fun <coughs> the um, you know, most of the feast days don't have a lot of instructions on how to celebrate. There's there's a handful usually. And Pentecost has got very few instructions um, on what you're supposed to do for the feast. And we see in Acts that the disciples were all gathered together in one place and they were praying. And so, you know, if people are looking for for ideas on what to do for Pentecost, um, 
mainly the thing that we're we're told in the Torah and mainly the thing we see in a, as an example in scriptures is that people gather together. And so it's a time of fellowship. You gather together and and you pray, you worship, you um, you can have a teaching or something, do Bible study, whatever, but gather together with other believers and celebrate um, celebrate the feast. Pentecost is um, traditionally the Jews say that Pentecost is the day that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai. And so you think, you know, Moses, um, the, he led the children of Israel out of Egypt on Passover. And then um, they, they got out into the wilderness, escaped the Egyptians through the Red Sea. And they uh, came to the bottom of Mount Sinai. And God spoke the Ten Commandments, all of Israel heard. And then Moses ascended up the mountain, and he was there for 40 days. And he came down the mountain after 40 days, and he had the Ten Commandments inscribed in stone. And um, traditionally, that was, I guess, the day that uh, the Jews say was on Pentecost. And so it, it's a commemoration of that day. And we know in the book of Acts that it was on Pentecost that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers. And so there's kind of this, um, oh, two things that we're, we're celebrating with Pentecost. One is the giving of, of the Torah, God's instructions, and the other is the giving of the Holy Spirit. And you look in the, <clears throat> in the uh, prophets about what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. And Jeremiah uh, 31 and Ezekiel 36 both talk about how God is going to write his commandments on our heart. And so the giving of the Holy Spirit in connection with the new covenant spoken by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, and then the, the giving of the Holy Spirit in Ezekiel 36 talks about, you know, writing God's commandments on our hearts so that we will do them. And so we, we understand that the Holy Spirit is given to guide us into uh, holiness, to guide us into righteousness, to guide us into obedience to God's instructions. And, um, so that's, that's one of the great things that, that Pentecost celebrates is the, the giving of the Holy Spirit in order that we can walk out God's, God's commandments and instructions and live a holy life. And so, um, anyway, this weekend is, is Pentecost and I would encourage you, um, to gather together and to celebrate, uh, with like-minded believers. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. What do we have? All right. Um, so the first question is from Seeking God's Yahweh's Truth. Um, he says, or she says, actually, whatever. Um, I don't necessarily hold to the belief that cooking on Shabbat is forbidden, although at times we may try, we, we try to keep that to a minimum to make things easier on my wife. Oh, yeah, he said. Uh, curious to hear your views. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay, so food prep. The, uh, the instructions in the Torah are, you know, there's, there's things in there that talk about not doing certain activities on the Sabbath. And so one of the things listed on... Uh, or some of the things listed on, on not working on the Sabbath include not kindling a fire. Um, and so you think about what is kindling a fire? Well, kindling a fire is where you take sticks and rub them together until you have a fire, or you take rocks and strike them together over a pile of, of leaves or grass or something until you spark a fire. And the act of kindling a fire is actually a lot of work. Uh, if you've ever tried to start a fire by rubbing sticks together, you, you understand it's not an easy process. Um, going over and, you know, turning the knob on the stove is, I would not call that kindling a fire. I would just call that turning on your stove. Um, going in and popping something in the microwave and hitting start, I would not call that kindling a fire. I would just call that turning on your microwave. Um, in, from what I understand in Israel, uh, there are a lot of laws dealing with that specific topic of kindling fire. And so <clears throat> in Israel, they don't uh, drive their cars, apparently, on the Shabbat. 
they don't push the button on the elevator on Shabbat. They don't turn on light switches on Shabbat. So all kinds of different things like that. And so, and the reason they give for that is because when you flip the light switch, you're sparking electricity and that's a type of kindling a fire. And it's, it's no different than the same things that they were doing in Yeshua's time. When they would say, if you spit on the ground and you make mud, then you're working because, uh, you know, that you're making mud. Or if you, um, make your bed or, you know, whatever, various things, they, they would say, well, this is work and you're not supposed to do it on Shabbat. Um, and there are things that you wouldn't typically think of as work. Uh, like, for example, spitting on the ground, you wouldn't typically think of that as work. Flipping a light switch on, you wouldn't typically think of that as work. Um, but they're, they're adding to the commandments and they're, they're heaping heavy burdens on people in doing so. Um, and what they've done in trying to adjust for that and, and to, you know, because they want to, they, they still want to have light in their homes. So they put special light switches on that either run on a timer. So the light comes on at a certain time, or they have motion sensors so that they can see you walk in the room and the, and the light comes on. And it's like, well, wait a minute. How is that any different than me reaching over and flipping the light switch? Um, it's doing the exact same thing. It just isn't requiring your finger to touch the light switch. Um, elevators are programmed to run and stop at every floor on Shabbat. And, you know, so rather, so if you're trying to get to the eighth floor and there's nobody else in the elevator, you have to stop at the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh before you finally get to the eighth, you know? So that would be, uh, I would consider a major annoyance for one, but um, it seems, it seems like a burden to do that. Um, you know, and so you look at, well, how are these commandments being lived out or, and taught and, and examples given in, in these communities. And in a lot of ways, it's very similar to what was happening in Yeshua's time is these extra burdens that are being put on people that are unnecessary. <coughs> now, that being said, um, you know, you think about, you talked about food prep and I, I think it depends on what you mean by food prep. And so if you mean you're going to take some flour and mix up some dough and knead it and let it rise and knead it some more and let it rise and knead it some more and let it rise and then bake it. Uh, I think that's a lot of work to be putting in on the Sabbath. But if you're going to take some um, frozen waffles and pop them in the toaster, uh, I don't think that's a problem on the Sabbath. Um, you know, if you have a loaf of bread that's already, already made and you're just going to smear some peanut butter on it and eat it, I don't think that's a problem. Um, you know, so like, it depends on what you're doing for food prep. Um, if you're, if you're putting a lot of laborious activity into making the meal, then I would say maybe, maybe you should do that on Friday instead. Um, a lot of people I know do crock pot meals and they'll do something on, you know, they'll prep it on Friday and just reheat it on Saturday. Uh, so stews and chilies and soups and things like that are, are great for, for doing that with, um, some people will just eat leftovers on Saturday. Some people just make sandwiches real simple. Um, you know, and the example given in the Torah is you have a double portion on Friday so that you have enough for Saturday. And so the idea of eating leftovers on Saturday really fits well with what was spoken of in uh, Exodus 16, whenever he talks about the giving of manna, he says, you know, six days you gather manna on the seventh day, you don't gather any on the sixth day. There's a double portion of manna, so you have enough for two days. And so the idea of eating eating some kind of leftovers on Saturday really um, fits in well with what was commanded concerning the manna. Um, you know, again, I, I, I don't want to be like the Pharisees and heap on extra burdens and tell people, well, you can't do this or you can't do that. Uh, you know, I think it's one of those things you need to pray about and you need to uh, try to figure out for your own house what is appropriate and what is not. Um, you know, we we try to encourage people to, to keep it simple, but um, 
you know, we also don't want, we don't want to create extra burdens for anybody either. And so, um, those are just some things to consider as far as food prep goes, I guess. All right. Next question. Next question is from Dana Keith. Um, Hi Lex, could something like gossip or snobbery, especially towards new members of a church, be types of offenses that Messiah is referring to in Luke 17 1? Alright. So let's look at Luke 17 real quick. Luke 17. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and seven times a day returns and says, I repent, you shall forgive him. Okay. So now there's a parallel passage uh, to this. And let me find it real quick. I was hoping it would be in the footnote, but it's not. <laughs> uh, there's a parallel in Matthew. I'm trying to think of where it's at. And it gives a slightly different wording. That's why I want to look for it. Um, Which verse are you looking for parallel to? Uh, the millstone tied around the neck. Yeah, do a quick search on Millstone. Eighteen six. Eighteen. Okay. All right. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes your sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet and be cast into everlasting fire. Okay, so Luke 17, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and, a, and he were thrown into the sea, then he should offend one of these little ones. Okay, so you see the difference here. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. So, um, it's they're parallel passages that are talking about the same concept. And the idea is, uh, woe to the one through whom offenses come. And so what does that mean? The woe to the one who causes one of these little ones to sin is the way Matthew words it. And... So when we think of offense, um, we think of, well, I was offended. You, you said something that offended me. I was offended by that. That's what we think when we think of offense. Um, think about, um, you know, well, the word offense means to offend. And, it, you know, it's connected to to offend. Well, but to offend means to go against or to uh to contradict or to, to sin basically. And so the idea is that if, you know, like in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, if your brother offends you, um, you know, go to him. If he sins against you is, is the context of what it's talking about. It's not, you know, if I, if I say, you know, I don't like the color blue and Isaac says, Oh, blue is the best color ever. I'm so offended that you don't like blue. You know, I haven't sinned. He may be offended at what I said, but I haven't sinned. And so I'm not causing offense in that sense of what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is if I cause someone to sin. So if I, if I do something that causes Isaac to sin, then I'm causing offense. Um, and so that's, that's where the difference is. You know, people get offended about all kinds of stuff. And, uh, you know, I just... You know, I'm surprised sometimes whenever I hear about things that people get offended about. Um, you know, I, I had a recent example of somebody getting offended at me for for something I thought, well, that's that just seems silly. Why would that offend anyone? Um, you know, and, and I just, I, you know, I, I put my hand on somebody's shoulder and, and 
said, hi, it's good to see you basically. And they got offended. And, and I thought, wow, that I don't understand. Why would that be offensive to anybody? Um, but you know, there are, um, there are a lot of people who get offended real easily and it doesn't mean that they're offended for reason. It doesn't mean that they're offended, that their offense is justified. It just means that they got offended easily. And that's not what he's talking about in Luke 17. It's, it's the same as Matthew 18. It's this idea that woe to the one whom causes sin. Woe to the one who causes a little one to sin, uh, a, a young believer to sin, or someone who's new to the faith to sin, someone who is a young person, you know, however, whatever context you want to look at that in. Woe to those who cause someone else to sin. They're causing offense. They're causing someone else to create an offense. Um, it's not woe to you if somebody gets offended because you said or did something they didn't like. Uh, so that's not exactly what it's talking about. But yeah, you're, you're, you mentioned gossip and slander and things like that. Yeah, those are offensive things because those are sinful things. The Bible uh, says that gossip and slander are sinful and you know we shouldn't be doing those kinds of things. And so, yes, those are offensive things. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> and you know, by the way, if I've offended you recently, I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend. Um, you know, sometimes offenses happen and, and I, I don't want to offend people. That's not my goal. I don't try to offend people. Um, apparently Saturday I, I offended several people. And if you're watching tonight, I'm, I apologize. I wasn't trying to offend anybody. I wasn't trying to make anybody upset. Um, I wasn't trying to, um, hurt anybody's feelings or anything like that. Uh, you know, I don't know what exactly was going on Saturday, um, but I, I've heard word that there were several people who were offended Saturday by me, and I don't know why. Um, I, you know, apparently I said some things that came across offensive to some people, and I wasn't trying to offend anybody, but it happens, <clears throat> and I apologize. I, I didn't mean to offend you, and so I hope that. Um, I hope that you will receive the apology and that you won't hold on to that offense. All right, next question. I just want to state for the record that I have never offended anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. People who know me know that's a lie. Uh, that statement's okay. offensive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, question from jo uh, Jonathan. Um, it's a long one, but it's actually a really good question. All right. All right, so why is there a food prep allowance for only 11 bread, uh, days one and seven, first and last days, um, Exodus twelve sixteen, where the word ordinary or customary work is used and not an allowance of food prep on other Sabbaths, high Sabbaths, that describe no ordinary or customary work to be done? And then he gives the verses for the like Shavuot and trumpets and Sukkot. <coughs> Was the food prep allowance only meant for the Israelites during the Exodus and not today? Man, that's a good question. Okay, so uh, find that verse real quick. Let's start. I'm going to start at verse 15. Uh, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses. For whoever eats unleavened bread from that first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, there should be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day, there should be a holy convocation. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. Okay, so he's saying you can prepare food on the feast. And, you know. It's hard to have a feast without food. So he's saying you can prepare food on the feast so you can have food to eat. Um, and if you think about, uh, you know, how the food prep was done, they, um, you know, they had to make the unleavened bread. And so you, you take the flour and the water and you make some dough and then you cook it. Unleavened bread is much less prep than leavened bread. You know, with leavened bread, you have to let it rise and push it down, let it rise, push it down, let it rise, push it down. And, you know, all these things of, of keeping, you know, letting it be leavened. 
Uh, with unleavened bread, you know, you just mix it up, roll it out, toss it in the oven. Um, so it's much less prep for unleavened bread. And uh, the idea, so with unleavened bread, when you think about it, it's the bread of haste. It's the bread that you were to eat. Uh, you know, the idea of, of unleavened bread is, you know, he told them to eat unleavened bread for seven days. It's the bread of haste. And you were to do it so that it will remind you that they didn't have time to let the bread rise. And so every day you make unleavened bread, you know, is, is the idea. Every day you would make unleavened bread and you make it quickly. You don't let it rise and uh, you're not going to have much left over for the next day. So you just make what you need for the day. And so you'd be making bread every day, including the high Sabbaths. Um, you also think that on the high Sabbath, those were days of celebration. Those were days of feasting. And when you gather all of your uh, friends and family together and have a celebration. And so you're going to have food prep for that day. You're going to need to prepare for the high Sabbath so that you can have a celebration and have food on that day. Um, and it's not a regular weekly Sabbath. It's a celebratory high Sabbath. Hmm. Excuse me, man. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, anyway, the idea is that you prepare food um, for the for the feast for the high Sabbath, <clears throat> and that's allowable so that you can celebrate the high Sabbath. So I, mean, I hope that makes sense. All right, next question. Uh, maybe we can uh, talk about it over the fire. On the fire too. Uh, yeah, because he'll be there. Yeah, uh, Noah Papas asked, uh, "I have a Jehovah Witness friend trying to teach me about his religion. What is the best way to show him I don't believe in the Jehovah Witness Bible, or some ways to tell him he is wrong? I don't know enough about Jehovah Witnesses." Um, that's a good question, and honestly, I don't know enough about Jehovah's Witness to give you a whole lot of information either. Um, I know that they have, um, have their own version of the Bible. And I know, for example, in John one, there's, uh, no, that's Mormons. Is it Jehovah's Witness? I can't remember if it's Jehovah's Witness the or The book Mormons. of Mormon is, uh, the, in John one, you know, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the Jehovah's Witness Bible, I think it says the word was a God. Mm. And <clears throat> I think that was Jehovah's Witness, but I, I, it may be Mormon. So I, I could be totally off here. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't have enough understanding of Jehovah's Witness to, to be able to tell you a whole lot. But what you, what you may want to do is look at some of the verses that are different in the Jehovah's Witness Bible. Like, for example, if that's, if that's actually what I'm thinking it is. Um, and then you can take them to the Greek and say, you know, here's the thing. We have, you know, X, you know, many thousands of Greek manuscripts. None of them say that. And they all say this. Why does your Bible say it differently? Now, there are examples like that. I know there are. Uh, because I've seen other people talk about them. Um, and so that's, that's a, you know, I think a, a good place to start. Um, you know, I, I probably should do some, do some study on that topic myself, just in case I ever come across a Jehovah's witness. Um, I, I've only met one in my entire life and it was a long time ago. It was a guy I worked with at a, at a company I worked for a long, long time ago. And that's the only Jehovah's Witness I've ever even met in my life. Um, I've run across a number of Mormons because they come knock on my door every once in a while. But uh, Jehovah's Witness really haven't had many run-ins with them. Um, but I know they have some some different views on who Yeshua is on on his. Uh, they they don't believe that he is God. If I'm if I remember correctly that they think he's like maybe an angel or something, I think. Yeah, um, I think he's Michael, the brother, or Michael and the brother of Satan. Yeah, they think he's the brother of Satan. They think he's he's uh, Michael the angel. 
Yeah, something along those lines. Um, and, you know, those are very unbiblical um, Christologies, you know, of thinking of him as as just being an angel and not God incarnate. You know, that's that's problematic. And, uh, you know, because you start thinking about, well, how did, you know, how can an angel die for our sins? How can an angel save us? How can an angel do all these things that Yeshua did? And, you know, are we the bride of an angel or are we the bride of God? You know, like what's this, what's this, the, the ramifications of this theology that they're trying to push forward is, you know, if Yeshua is not God, then if he's just an angel, then, well, if we're the bride of Yeshua. That means we're the bride of an angel. We're not married to God. We're married to an angel. Um, you know, if, if an angel died for you, then uh, God didn't save you. An angel saved you. And that's problematic because of many of the things that Isaiah said about how, how God said that he is going to be the one who saves us, that he is the redeemer and that you know, he's the one that saves us. So, um, you know, any, any cult or religion or denomination or whatever that is, uh, attacking the deity of Yeshua, um, they've got major theological problems if they don't understand the deed of Yeshua and um, it's, it's got ramifications that roll into many other places and those are probably the most important things that I would look at though if I was looking at talking to a Jehovah's Witness is you know I, I would talk to them about well who, who is Jesus who is Yeshua let's talk about that because that's one of the most important doctrines in the Bible who is Jesus? Is he the son of God? Is he the savior or is he something else? Is he God incarnate or is he something else? And where they go with that would probably guide my conversation with them. And honestly, I don't, I don't have to know all of the arguments Jehovah's Witness make in order to talk to them about the deity of Yeshua. Uh, because, you know, if you know what the Bible says about Yeshua, you can, you can take them to numerous passages and show them this is what the Bible says about Yeshua. And now they may pull out their Bible and have it worded differently. And then that's where you're going to have the conversations about, okay, well, let's look at the original text. Let's, let's look at the Hebrew and the Greek and see what it's actually saying. And um, you're going to find that their Bible has been skewed intentionally to hide the deity of Yeshua. So... All right, next question. <clears throat> uh, next question is from Joshua Antilla, and it's it's another good one. Okay. He says, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son or from the Father only? And he lists some verses. John 14, 16, John 14, 26, 15, 26, mm -hmm. 16, 7, 16, 13 through 15. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, there's, there's verses that talk about how uh, Yeshua will send the Holy Spirit. And there's verses that talk about how the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And there's verses that talk about how the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, and the answer is yes, the Holy Spirit comes from the Father. And yes, the Holy Spirit comes from the Son. Um, and they're, they're, they're all three one. Um, and so the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are unified. They're one, one Yahweh, one God, one creator. Um, you think about when Yeshua said, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He, he used the word name singular. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In, throughout the Bible, the word name is used to describe a, man, a person's character, their reputation, their um, their personality, their being. And so when you say, I'm gonna do this in the name of God, you're saying, I'm gonna do this in the in the character of him, in the personality of him, in, the, in his reputation, in his authority, things like that. And so when you say in the name, the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're saying they all have a shared name they have a shared personality, a shared um, authority, a shared reputation, 
shared character. And this is something we'll see throughout scriptures that uh, they're interchangeable. And so we see that uh, in Genesis, we see that, you know, the, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters and God spoke the word. Everything was created. So we have all three of them present there, right? Uh, God said, let us make man in our image. Speaking of a plurality, speaking to himself in third person and plural. Um, you know, there's numerous things like that throughout the scriptures where there, there's hints at this plurality of God. And, you know, in the New Testament, we see it even more pronounced than in the Old Testament. But it's, it's hinted at throughout the Old Testament in numerous places. And there's places that talk about this, the Holy Spirit, connecting the Holy Spirit, saying the Holy Spirit is God. Like, for example, in Acts, when um, Peter confronts uh, was Ananias and Sapphira about, uh, you know, saving back some of the money for selling their property. And he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then like two verses later, he says, you, you lied to God. And it's used connected. He's connecting these two ideas that you lied to the Spirit and you lied to God, that that's the same thing. The lying to the Spirit is lying to God. Um, and so there's numerous things throughout the, uh, throughout the Bible that, that point to not only the unique individual personality of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a, a person separate from the Father and the Son, but also point to the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that the three are one, and they are unified, and that they, uh, they form one Godhead, one God. And so we don't believe in a plurality of gods. We believe in one God. There's one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that God, that one God, uh, has revealed himself to us in three persons. The person of the Father, the person of the Holy Spirit, and the person of the Son. And uh, that's a hard concept for a lot of people. And, and I know that there's probably people right now who are, who are want to argue with me um, and saying that, you know, all the different heretical arguments that have been proposed over the years, you know, the modalism, you know, uh, Unitarianism, uh, Arianism, you know, all these different types of, of heresies that were proposed trying to describe the, um, the nature of God in unbiblical terms, basically. And the closest, the closest of all of the attempts that man has had to uh, define the character and nature of God is, is best summed up and described in the Trinity. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's perfect. I, I think that there's probably still uh, things in Trinity language that, that is not perfect, uh, but we're flawed humans. And we're trying to describe something that's beyond our, beyond our imagination. You know, it's beyond us. It's, it's something that we don't understand. And we're trying to describe something we don't really understand. But we're trying to describe it through what the Bible says. And the Bible says the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And those, those things are used all over the Bible. <clears throat> What's interesting is Yeshua says that uh, if you blaspheme the Father or the Son, you can be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you, you won't be forgiven. So that's an interesting thing to say because... The people who come along and say the Holy Spirit is just some kind of a uh, a force or a power that proceeds from God, that is not some kind of a person or a personality. How can you blaspheme that? It makes no sense. And if you say that it's just the power of God and, and you blaspheme the power of God, you can't be forgiven, but you can blaspheme God himself and be forgiven. That doesn't make any sense that, that you're exalting the power of God above God himself and saying that the power is you can't blaspheme the power, but you can actually blaspheme or you, you can't blaspheme the power, but you can blaspheme God. Like that makes no sense. But to say that the Holy Spirit is a person and is part of the Godhead and Yeshua is defending that person saying, don't, don't dare speak a word against him. Uh, that's a different scenario. And so, um, you know, this idea that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit only makes sense if the Holy Spirit is a person and only makes sense if the Holy Spirit is deity, is God himself. Um, so 
you know, you think about things like grieving the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve something that's not a person? You know, can, can you grieve a force? Can you grieve a power? Can you grieve, like, for example, can you grieve gravity? Can you grieve light? That You can't grieve those things. Grief is an emotion. So to grieve the Holy Spirit means that he has emotions. It means he has feelings. It means that he's a person. Um, you know, there's, there's numerous things that talks about the Holy Spirit spoke, right? Over and over again, the Holy Spirit spoke to people. How can a non-person speak? How can an, a, a, uh, a power, just a, an invisible force speak? That makes no sense. A person can speak. And so, you know, like I said, light, light is a force, light is a power. Light can't speak. Gravity is a force. Gravity is a power. Gravity cannot speak. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, the Bible says the Holy Spirit inspired the word of God. He was the one who inspired the prophets. And he gave them the words to, to, to write and to say. And so the, the, the scriptures were inspired by God. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Yeshua is called the word of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It says the word was God. So all these things are intertwined together. That God is his word. God is his spirit. Uh, and the, and, but they're separate. They're somehow unique from one another, but also intertwined with one another. So anyway, again, it's, we're trying to describe something that's beyond our capacity to describe. And it makes it difficult sometimes. All right. Next question. Next question is from <clears throat> Lilies of the Field. Uh, she asks, I had a conversation with someone who said the holy days don't point to Yeshua, specifically Sukkot. He said it doesn't explicitly say that in Scripture and asked me to cite verses. Ah, okay. Let me cite you a couple of verses. So let's turn over to Colossians. So let's start with Colossians and go to chapter 2, verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Okay, so feast day, new moons and Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Okay, so the, the festivals, the feasts, the new moons and the Sabbaths are a shadow of Messiah. What he's talking about is they're prophetic foreshadows. They're prophetically pointing to Yeshua. Now let's turn to John chapter 7. And let's look at Yeshua's own words, specifically about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, let's see here. So we see... Let's just start in, ch in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, uh, or verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brother said to him, Therefore, let's depart from him and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. Skip down a little bit. He says, My time's not yet come. And so his brothers leave, but he waits. And then uh, then he goes up to the feast later. Okay. So it says, but when, uh, verse 10, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? So, you know, this is setting the stage. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles. And um, let's go down here to... All right, verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, he stood up and he said, Anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink of the living waters. 
Um, and this is actually a quote. Let me find it here real quick. Actually, it may not be footnoted here. Yeah, it's not in the footnotes. Um, but there's actually, he's actually making reference to something uh, in the Old Testament about the rivers of living water. But he is, there's an event that took place um, at Tabernacles. Are we, we lose uh, our stream? I don't know. It's uh -oh. been cutting out real bad. Uh -oh, yeah. We may have lost our stream. Tell him, um, tell him I'll upload it. I told him that already. Yeah, I'll upload the recording. All right. Uh, so at the Feast of Tabernacles, the last great day of the feast, there was what was called the water libation ceremony. And what they would do is they would put water on the altar. And they would talk about the, the water, the living waters and things like that. And it was a really, it was a, a uh, big ordeal. It was a big event and uh, kind of a, a What's the word? It was a spectacle in a sense that everybody, it drew a crowd. Everybody came to be part of the water libation ceremony. And it was kind of the big culmination of the event. And Yeshua stood up at that point when they were, you know, the last great day, when they're doing the water libation ceremony, they're pouring water on the, on the altar and the, the water, the living water, they would call it. And he said, come to me and get living water. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of this. And, you know, you think about um, what is what does John 1 say that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us? You know, that this this idea of dwelling among us, dwelling together, that he came to dwell with us. Um, the word tabernacle is used there kind of curiously. Um, but so, yeah, the feasts point to Yeshua and you think about. All right. So what what do the spring feasts do? We have he was died at Passover as the Passover lamb. First uh, Corinthians five talks about you know for Christ our Passover sacrifice for us therefore let us keep the feast. He rose on first fruits as the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen that Christ the first fruits uh, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, and then you know we who are His will be brought together with Him when He returns. And we see that um, Pentecost Shavuot. The Holy Spirit was poured out and given to all believers. Well, that was, you know, connecting again, Yeshua with the feast and what he, his, the work of what Yeshua was doing to the feast. He, he said, you know, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. What is, what is the first thing that John says? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the one whose sandals are not fit to untie, he's going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Yeshua is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He did that at Pentecost. Okay. So then we get to the fall feasts. We have trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. Now, these three um, all point to Yeshua. Now, the fulfillment of them is not complete yet, but they all point to him. Trumpets announce his return. He's, he's announced as a king. Trumpets announce the king is coming. Um, the sound of the trumpet is, is the blast to announce the, the coronation of the king. And we see in the New Testament, it says that at the last trump, every knee will bow. You know, the dead in Christ will raise. All these things are going to happen at the last trump, right? We, we get to the next feast, the Day of Atonement. This is, this is the day when uh, judgment takes place. And the reading of the Book of Life and, and people's sins are, are atoned for, or people's sins are not atoned for, one or the other, right? And, you know, all these things take place. And so there's a fulfillment in already through atonement that Yeshua is our atonement. Hebrews talks about that, but then there's also a future atonement at the judgment that is yet to happen. And then we have tabernacles. Tabernacles is the ingathering. It's the, the end of the year harvest festival. And it's when all of the harvest is gathered in and there's a huge celebration and, and a huge feast. It's also the wedding celebration, the wedding, wedding banquet. And this is a future event that has not been completely fulfilled yet is we're still waiting for that final fulfillment of this when Yeshua gathers in all of his people and we have the great wedding feast, but <clears throat> he has, uh, there's a few, um, uh, parables also that he tells that are 
connect to this, like the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins, the wise and the foolish, um, the parable of the wheat and the tares, uh, the parable of the wedding feast, um, Those are probably the main ones that would point to the, the Feast of Tabernacles. But, you know, there's a number of parables that he told that are connected to that <clears throat> as well. So, uh, you know, this person who says that the feasts don't point to Yeshua, uh, they, they don't understand what the feasts do. And they really don't understand the purpose of the uh, of the feasts because the, the feasts were given to point us to Yeshua. Same with all of the Law and the Prophets. They were given to point us to Yeshua. And Paul says that, um, you know, that uh, the law, uh, how does he, he phrase it? The, the Christ is the end of the law. <clears throat> that phrase, Christ is the end of the law. Uh, the word end there is telos. And so Christ is the telos of the law. Well, what does telos mean in Greek? It, it means the goal or the target. So, and it's an archery term. So you think about somebody who's shooting a bow and arrow or something. They, the telos, it's where we get the word uh, telescope or telegraph or telegram, right? It's, <clears throat> excuse me, the goal. So Yeshua is the goal of the Torah, right? So everything was meant to point us to him. And well, what is sin? Sin is, is to miss the mark. The goal is Yeshua to sin is to fall short or to miss the mark of Yeshua. Yeshua kept the Torah perfectly, right? So the goal of the Torah is to be like Yeshua, to point us to Yeshua. Yeshua told his disciples that um, all of the law and the prophets were written about him. And, you know, after his resurrection in Luke 20, was it 23 or 24, he tells them, he, he opens up the, their eyes and he shows them wondrous things from the Old Testament. He shows them all the things that are written about him in Moses and the prophets and, and all throughout the Old Testament. And so, you know, all of this stuff in the Old Testament should point us to Yeshua. That's the goal of it. That's why it's there. And so it all should point us to him in some way or another. And, and some of it is foreshadows. Some of it are prophetic foreshadows of him to hint at things things that hint about his resurrection, things that hint about his birth, things that prophetically speak about those things as well. So through the prophets where they prophetically say, you know, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, like those, those are very clear prophecies. But then there's things like, again, the feasts that hint, the sacrifices uh, in the temple that hint, um, you know, the, for example, the, the scapegoat, and the goat of the atonement at the day of atonement. Those two things both hint at things about Yeshua. And so, I mean, there's, there's lots of things throughout the Old Testament that point to Yeshua. And the feasts are one of the major things that points to Yeshua. And the prophetic foreshadows of, of things that he has done and things that he will do. So, alrighty. Next question. Next question last is... Last question, last question. We're almost at the end. In Last question <laughs> is a super chat, actually. Okay, thanks. From Daniel Camargo. He says, are evil spirits called shame, guilt, hatred, etc.? Uh, and why don't most churches cast out demons? Isn't that a sign of belief? Are evil spirits called shame? Like the spirit of shame, a spirit of guilt, a spirit of lust, a spirit of adultery. Okay, okay. Like... <clears throat> I, I wasn't sure what he was asking exactly, but yeah, that makes sense now. All right, so there. Let me ask your. Let me answer your second part of the question first. Uh, why don't a lot of churches cast out demons? Um, I think that is a complicated and complex question. There are some churches who claim to cast out demons and they put on a really big show, but I'm not sure that they're accomplishing anything. There's some churches who are afraid to cast out demons uh, because they don't know what they're doing. There's some churches who don't believe 
demons exist, and so they don't see the need in casting out demons. Um, there's some churches who believe that all that stuff passed away with the apostles, and so we don't need to do that anymore because you know it was all done with the apostles. Uh, some churches believe that, uh, you know, I'm going to air quotes this one. They believe that demons are, uh, mental disorders. And so they treat everything with counseling. Um, you know, and so they, they say that the, the ancient people were just too dumb to understand about mental disorders. And so they just labeled everything demons. And, you know, so healing of someone of a demon is really just healing them of a mental disorder. That's the statement they might make. So, like I said, it's a complex question. There's a lot of reasons why different churches don't cast out demons. Um, some of it may be just because they don't recognize them and they don't, they don't um, realize that they're dealing with something demonic. Uh, that's a possibility too. Not that they don't believe in it. Not that they don't think it's possible. They just don't understand. They, they don't. They don't understand that what they're dealing with is demonic, and they just think they're dealing with, uh, you know, a difficult situation, maybe. Um, so there's there's lots of reasons why people may not be casting out demons. Um, and you know, in some cases, maybe they haven't encountered any. You know, I, I think I, that's not impossible. Um, it's maybe unlikely, but it's not impossible. Um, but let's let's go to what was the first part of the question now? Uh, the names are okay, yeah, so names like, like calling them yeah, uh, like spirit of gluttony, gluttony laziness, greed. greed. Yeah, okay, um, yeah, I think that I don't know that those are necessarily their names as much as they are their function or their job or the role or what they're trying to accomplish through you. They definitely respond to that, though. Yeah. So, like, um, you know, a spirit of anger. Well, what does that mean? Is his name anger? I don't. I don't think his name is anger, but I think he's a spirit that is causing anger to rise up in you. Um. You know, so uh, it's more of like the function that he's serving. He is a spirit to cause anger. Um, it talks about how King King Saul. The Holy Spirit left him and, and God sent a tormenting spirit to him, right? And it would torment him. That was the purpose. That was the function. It tormented him. And then David would play his harp and, and his torments would cease, right? So the torment, you know, that uh, some people think maybe it was uh, some kind of a mental issue that he was having, depression or something like that, possibly. And that, you know, the the, the music would calm his depression. Uh, and that may very well be, but that depression was being caused by some kind of demonic entity. The Bible says that it was a, a spirit, some kind of an evil spirit that was tormenting him. And so if it was a depression, then you, you might be able to argue, well, that was a spirit of depression. Okay. I, I'm, I don't have a problem with you saying that was a spirit of depression. Um, and the, you know, you say, well, the heart music made him feel better. So, um, you know, you say, well, that's like a treatment, you know, the, the treatment is to, to alleviate the stress or alleviate the pain or alleviate the mood swings or whatever. So the heart music was a treatment for it, but it wasn't the cure and it was it didn't cast it out. And so, uh, you might be able to appease those tormenting spirits at times and get them to, to, to leave you alone or whatever. But, um, in the New Testament, we see numerous examples of Yeshua casting out demons and the apostles casting out demons. And um, Yeshua said that believers have the authority to cast out demons. So if you are a believer, you have the authority to cast out demons. And it's it's not your authority, it's Yeshua's authority. And so you stand in his authority and you're able to cast out those demons by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And the Holy Spirit has the authority. Um, so there's there's no reason why you can't uh, cast out demons. If you believe in Yeshua, you've been saved, uh, you're redeemed by his blood, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are able to cast out demons. Um, but many people don't, either they don't believe in demons or they uh, are afraid. And um, 
they don't know what to do. They, they're confused or they're, uh, you know, just don't have any experience with it and they're not sure what to do about it. And so, um, anyway, that's, I think I answered the question. <laughs> so, all right. Well, uh, it looks like the live stream crashed a long time ago, so I'm definitely going to have to upload this mm -hmm. video. Uh, but thank you guys for, um, for all your great questions. And I hope you guys have a great week. And I hope you have a wonderful feast of Pentecost. And we'll talk to you later. Thanks. Thanks for watching. If you found this video helpful, then share it with your friends and family so they can unlearn the lies with us. If you want to see more videos like this one, subscribe to my channel. And I want to say a special thank you to those who support this ministry. We truly appreciate your prayers and your generosity. Thank you so much. And remember, the truth will set you free. We'll see you next time.